Almighty God, we pray to you, Father, thanking you for the blessings that we so often take for granted, our food, clothes, shelter, our freedom in this country, your word, your scriptures, the salvation found in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that leads to redemption and forgiveness. We pray, Father, that you will bless this study, this final study in our series uh, called Jesus Walks, a series where we've tried to carefully consider the geography mentioned in the Bible and why that geography is mentioned and the significant events that took place in various locations revealed by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you will bless this study. I pray that you will continue to be with your people across this country and across this globe during very difficult and troubled times. Father, always use us as your vessels. Let us always be honorable and righteous before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we wrap up our 12 class study entitled Jesus Walks, as we wrap that up today, I would like to just begin this particular video by saying thank you. For those of you who have been keeping up and watching all of the videos, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for studying with me over the past few weeks. Thank you for being interested in spiritual things. Thank you for investing your time to studying something that is not really talked about a lot among brethren, and that is geography. That is the geography that is mentioned in the Bible and the importance of the geography that is mentioned in the scriptures. Thank you for studying with me over the past, over the past few weeks. In this particular video, I want to wrap up this series by sharing with you some extra things, extra places that I was able to see back in my trip to Israel in 2015. I want to share with you five extra, extra things that I was able to see that we have not talked about so far. The, four, the first four things I'm going to talk with you about, I'm just going to touch on them kind of briefly, and then the last thing I'm going to talk with you about is something that I want to spend a little bit of time discussing. And so let's go ahead and just jump right into our classes, and let's begin by going back to where we started or where we ended last time. Let's begin by going back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Remember in our last video, our video from Sunday, we spent the whole class, the whole hour, talking about the significance of Jerusalem. We looked at the temple ruins, the city of David, the Western Wall, and a few other things. We made the point that out of all of the places that are mentioned in the Bible, no place is more significant than Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where the temple was located. It was the capital for King David and King Solomon. It is the city that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. We talked about Jerusalem in our last video, and I want to talk with you about some other things 
that I was also able to see in Jerusalem. And the first thing I want to talk with you about is Hezekiah's tunnel. King Hezekiah's tunnel. You ever heard of Hezekiah's tunnel? This is actually mentioned in the Bible in a couple of different places. You see, before the Assyrian invasion of Judah, and if you remember, in the Old Testament we learned that the Assyrians were God's vessels, God's angels of wrath to take into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, before they began trying to invade Judah around 700 B.C., King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah built a tunnel under, under the city of David. This tunnel served to bring water from the Gihon Spring into the city while keeping it away from the Assyrians. This project of Hezekiah is mentioned two different places in the Old Testament. It's actually mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, and then it is emphasized further in verse number 30, and then it is also mentioned in 2 Kings 20 and verse number 20. It was an amazing accomplishment by Hezekiah. Now, of the kings of Judah, none of them, hardly any of them, were very faithful to God. Hezekiah is one of the few kings that was a faithful servant of God. The tunnel that Hezekiah dug to bring water into the city, into the city for the people of Judah while keeping it away from the Assyrians, this tunnel was discovered in 1867 by the British explorer Sir Charles Warren. It is about 750, 1700, I'm sorry, and 50 feet. That is almost the length of five football fields. I want you to ponder on that for just a moment. This tunnel is almost the length of five football fields. Water still runs through it today. In fact, I was actually able to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And since I'm not that tall of a guy, the water, when I walked through it, the water got to about about my knees at, at certain parts in it. Uh, this the still has water go through it to this day, and in some parts, the water got up to about, about my knees. Now, I want to show you some pictures of what it looked like going through Hezekiah's tunnel. This is a sign that is in the tunnel. It, say, it says that you're standing at the place where the Shaloa inscription written approximately 2,700 years ago during the reign of King Hezekiah was discovered. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. This is the tunnel that he dug to bring water into Jerusalem from the Gihon Spring. Notice how narrow the tunnel is. Notice how dark it is. Notice how there is water that still runs through the tunnel to this day. It actually took us a, 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 a little bit of time to go through this tunnel. As I said earlier, this tunnel is about the length of five football fields. It is dark. It is cold. There's water still running through it. It is very narrow. But even by today's standards, this was a, a, a huge accomplishment. This was an amazing feat that Hezekiah was able to accomplish to bring water to his people while keeping it away from the enemy. This is something 
that is mentioned in the scriptures. Now, when you get to the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, you get to something called the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam. You ever heard of the Pool of Siloam before? Do you remember where the Pool of Siloam is mentioned in the Bible? This, as I said a few minutes or a couple of minutes ago, this pool is at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel. It was fed by water from the Gihon Spring. When you come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, you come to the pool of Saloon. Now, during the time of Jesus, the pool probably served as a mikvah for Jewish ritual baths. And if you remember in our last video, we talked about mikvahs. Remember, mikvahs were bodies of water that were specifically used by Jews to engage in ritualistic baths, baths of purification. They were especially go through these, these ritualistic baths uh, if they happen to touch something that a Gentile touched or something that a Samaritan touched. When they felt they were unclean, they would do this uh, to, to go through this ceremonial washing of hands. That is something that the Pharisees uh, would get on to Jesus about. They didn't like the fact that, that he didn't go through uh, the purification of washing hands to keep the tradition of the elders. This, that, that was probably done in, in mikvahs. Uh, mikvahs were Jewish ritual baths, Jewish ritual bathing. They would engage in these things when they thought they were unclean. They would engage in these things before offering their animal sacrifices when going to Jerusalem. Many believe that the pool of, of Siloam was probably used for Jewish ritual bathing, but it is not most known for that today. The thing that this pool is most known for today is it is the location where Jesus healed a man born blind in John chapter 9. Read John chapter 9. Remember in John chapter 9, after having a man who was born blind, apply some clay to his eyes that was mixed with the Lord's spit, Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He said, you go and you wash this clay off in that pool and you will be healed. The Bible says once that man received those instructions from Jesus, he then went and washed in this pool and he was instantly healed made whole for the first time in his life he was able to see Jesus healed this man in the pool of Siloam this miracle was so amazing that the religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees they did not want to accept the fact that this man was born blind they investigated it very carefully. They talked to his parents. They talked to him. And even after it was confirmed that this man was born blind and a legitimate miracle had taken place, they still would not believe in Jesus. They still would not accept him as the Messiah. They rebuked the blind man who was made whole. And they told him, hey, you follow him, but we follow Moses. They would not accept the Lord, even though the Lord gave sight to a man 
who was born blind. Now, what you see here is not obviously the entire pool. It is just part of what it was in the time of Jesus. The majority of this pool is actually on private property. It's actually controlled by, by Catholics, by a Catholic church, I believe. And so we were only able to see part of the area of the Pool of Saloon. The majority of it is hard to get to. If you are a tourist, it is on private property. But this right here is the general vicinity where this pool would have been in the time of Jesus. It is at the end when you make your way out of Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, another pool I want to talk with you about is the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda. Do you remember where the Pool of Bethesda is mentioned in the Bible? The Pool of Bethesda is mentioned also in the Gospel of John. It is actually also mentioned before the Pool of Siloam is mentioned in John chapter 9. This pool is mentioned in John chapter 5. According to what we find in John chapter 5 and verse number 2, this pool in the first century was located near the Sheep Gate. Now, today, its ruins are in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. The Bible also says that this pool had five porticos. There were five different places of entry to get access to this pool. This could mean that it, too, served as a mikvah. It also probably served as a place where Jews would engage in purification, ritualistic baths. Now, like the pool mentioned in John chapter 9, this pool, the pool of Bethesda, is most famous today for being a place where Jesus performed a miracle. Jesus performed a miracle here at the pool of Bethesda. Here Jesus healed a man who was a paralytic. We read about it in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1, there we can read about how during the time of the first century, the withered, the sick, the blind, the lame, people who had infirmities, would lay outside of the pool of Bethesda. They, they would lay there and they would wait. They would wait according to what the text says, for an angel of God to come and stir up the pool. Whenever the angel would come and stir up the pool, they believed that the first person who could make their way into the pool would be healed of whatever infirmity they had, whether it was paralysis, whether it was being uh, blind or lame, or had, if you had a withered or deformed body part. Now, I don't know if that was really what was going on, the text doesn't really tell us. I don't know if this was legitimate or not, but what we do know is these people really believed it. These people really believed that an angel would come, he would come occasionally, and he would stir up the water, and the first one in would be healed. The Bible says that there was a man who was about 40 years old, and he could not walk, and he could never make his way into the pool. Whenever he wanted to go and get into the pool, someone would always beat him there. He would lay outside the pool, but he could never be the first one in. Now, 
Jesus encounters this man. And Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed. He asked him if he wanted to be healed of his paralysis. And of course the man said, yes, he wanted to be healed. And so the Lord, the Lord didn't stir the pool up. Instead, what the Lord did is he just spoke a few words and immediately, just like that, the man was cured. Immediately, just like that, the man had the ability to walk. While this man could never make his way into the pool, when he came into contact with Jesus, he didn't need to make his way into the pool to be healed. Jesus healed him right there, right on the spot. That occurred at the pool of Bethesda. This is where the pool is, would have been located in the time of Jesus. There's actually a church, a Catholic church, <laughs> and you probably could have assumed that already, that is right next to this pool. But this is the place, this is the area where Jesus healed the paralytic. That's John chapter 5. Now, I want to move on and talk with you about Jeroboam's altar. You remember the story of Jeroboam in the Old Testament? I hope you're familiar with that because what Jeroboam does with this altar here is very significant to what you find in the majority of the Old Testament, particularly with what you find in the case of trying to explain the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel before going to Assyrian captivity. Once Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, the Bible says that every king after him would follow in his footsteps. Every king after him would be a wicked king. They would be involved in idolatry. In fact, they would be involved in the idolatry that Jeroboam set up at this altar. You see, after being made the king of the newly formed kingdom of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 12, the scripture says that Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, set up two golden calves. Two golden calves. These golden calves were designated places of worship in Bethel and Dan. Look carefully at your map. Notice how Bethel, Bethel, it was going to be to the, to the south, and Dan is going to be to the north. And so in Bethel and Dan, in Bethel and Dan, Jeroboam set up these designated places of of worship. He set up two golden calves in these places. Now, why did he do that? Well, the scripture says that King Jeroboam built these altars because he did not want his citizens traveling back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He did not want his citizens going back to the kingdom of Rehoboam. He was afraid that they would return to the king of the south if he allowed them to go and worship at, at, at the temple. Jeroboam sold his kingdom on this idea, this idea of worshiping in Bethel and Dan instead of Jerusalem where God told them to. He sold them on this idea by making his newly formed sister system similar to God's true worship. He claimed that the people would still be worshiping God. He also established altars, just like they had in Jerusalem. And he also established a priesthood, just like they had in Jerusalem. 
He also had a feast day, a feast that like that was like the one in Judah. That's what you find in 1 Kings 12 and verse 32. And so Jeroboam sold his people on this idea by selling them on the idea of convenience. He essentially told them, hey, you don't need to go all the way back to Jerusalem to worship God. You can do it near your home. You can do it by going to Bethel if you live in the south of the kingdom. You can do it by going to Dan if you live in the northern part of the kingdom. You don't have to go all the way back to Jerusalem. It is more convenient for you to keep worshiping God, to worship God in Israel. Do it in my kingdom. Hey, I have a priesthood here, just like they got a priesthood in Jerusalem. I got a feast day here, just like they got a feast day in Jerusalem. I have an altar here, just like they have an altar in Jerusalem. Jeroboam made his system of worship look somewhat similar to the system of worship going on in Jerusalem, and he sold them on the idea of convenience, but while it may have been similar and while it may have been Convenient, it was still wrong, brothers and sisters. It was still sin. It was still a form of idolatry. It wasn't worship that was authorized by God. As similar as it may have been, it was not what God instructed all of Israel to do. You see, even though the kingdom is divided by this time, God still wants the ten tribes in the north to go to Jerusalem. He still wants them to worship at his house in Jerusalem. He still wants them to take their sacrifices to the priest in Jerusalem. He still wants them to go to the altar in Jerusalem. He still wants them to keep the feast days that are, are to be kept in Jerusalem. Jeroboam set up a new system of worship that looks similar to what was going on in Jerusalem, but it wasn't the real thing. It was a form of idolatry. It was a sin. It was wrong. And unfortunately, every king who followed Jeroboam in Israel, every king in Jeroboam or in Israel who followed Jeroboam, they followed in, in his footsteps. They followed in his sin and, and his idolatry. And so this altar here is a big deal. This is the altar that was in Dan. There were two altars, one in Bethel, one in Dan. This is the one the archaeologists found in, in, in Dan. This is where the golden calf was set up that was supposed to be a convenient place of worship for the people there so they wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem. This was a sin. This was wrong. This was not what God had prescribed when it came to worship for his people. And so that's Jeroboam's altar. Read about that when you have some time in 2 Kings chapter, and 1 Kings, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Now, let me show you one more thing, and that's going to be the video. I want to show you some things about Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. Do you remember what significant event took place in Mount Carmel? I want to read to you a lengthy section of Scripture that just kind of set up everything else I'm going to talk about, and I want you to follow me with this, okay? This is important. I know this is lengthy, but I want to read what the Holy Spirit says here. I can't say it any better than the Spirit of God. In 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18, verse 20. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. 
The Bible says, so Ahab, this is King Ahab, a king who would follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam. This is a wicked man, a wicked king. This is the man who was married to Jezebel. She was a wicked woman. It says, so Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves, and cut it up, and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox, and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they, which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah, the prophet of God, came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. 
He said to his servant, Go up now, look at the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. And he came about, it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud, as small as a man's hand, is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up to Ahab, and go and say, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, while the sky, sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and I read, outran Ahab to Jezreel. You familiar with this story right here? It is indeed a powerful story that is found in the word of God. It tells us about a very significant event at Mount Carmel. The name Mount Carmel doesn't refer to one peak, but rather it's an entire mountain range. Notice how it is just to the north of Caesarea Maritima. Do you see it? Right near the Mediterranean Sea. Mount Carmel is a coastal mountain range that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea towards the southeast as far as Jenin. It contains several caves and is covered with oak trees, pine trees, and olive trees. It was somewhere on this mountain, Mount Carmel, that the Bible says the prophet Elijah confronted 450 prophets of Baal. We just read about that in the sacred text. In the text we just read, the Bible says that Elijah, he had the false prophet slaughtered at the brook Kishon after calling fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice that he offered, even the altar and water. You see, this right here was an opportunity for the people to see who was the real God, who was the legitimate deity. Was it Baal or was it Jehovah? The prophets of Baal had several hours to make it known to the people that Baal was real, that that was the true religion, but they could not demonstrate anything. They were exposed to be frauds, but Elijah was exposed or revealed to be a true prophet of God because he spoke to God through prayer. He called on God, and God consumed the sacrifice and the altar and even the water that was surrounding the altar with fire. God revealed himself to Israel on this occasion. He revealed that he is real. He revealed that he is Jehovah the Lord, and he revealed that Elijah was a true prophet. This took place. Fire coming down from heaven and consuming a sacrifice. This took place at Mount Carmel. Now, that statue I showed you in the first slide, that's called the Statue of Elijah. And it is located on a part of Mount Carmel today. This statue reflects the victory, reflects the Lord's victory against the false prophets of Baal. There's also a Carmelite chapel near the Elijah statue. And in the Bible, in addition to being used to refer to what happened or to tell us about what happened in this incident with Elijah, Mark, Mount Carmel is often used as a symbol of beauty in the Bible. Read Song of Solomon 7 and verse 5. There, Mount Carmel is used figuratively as a symbol of, of beauty. From Mount Carmel, you also have a great view of Mount Tabor, 
remember Mount Tabor or Mount Tabor, however you want to say that, that is uh, one of the possible mountains where many believe Jesus was transfigured. We had a class on that a few weeks ago. You can also see Mount uh, Gilboa from Mount Carmel. Remember, Saul and his son, Jonathan, were both killed by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. You can see both of those mountains from Carmel. Now, I put this here because this is typically what we think of first when we think of Mount Carmel. We think of this incident with Elijah, which is one of the most powerful manifestations of God that we can read about in the scriptures. This is a wide shot of what Mount Carmel looks like. This is the mountain where this great miracle, where this great miracle was performed. This is the statue of Elijah. Uh, this is the part of Mount Carmel that, that we went to where this statue is located. This is uh, supposed to represent uh, or be symbolic for the victory that was, that was uh, accomplished here by Elijah and, and, and Jehovah the Lord. Before we went to get a good view of, of the Jezreel Valley from Mount Carmel, we first gathered together as a group and we, and we read these scriptures that I just read to you. We read this account from 1 Kings 18. And it was a very powerful thing. It was a very powerful thing to read this story from the very place it occurred. It's right here. It's the Carmelite Church. It is located near the Elijah statue. This is a view of inside the chapel or the church. We actually, uh, we actually went and got a good view of Carmel and the Jezreel Valley by standing on top of, this, uh, of the roof of this church or this chapel. This right here is a, is a view from Mount Carmel. What you're looking at is uh, the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is mentioned uh, throughout, throughout the scriptures. Uh, but this is how the Jezreel Valley looks from Mount Carmel. We just read about how it says in verse number 46 of this text that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. This is the direction that Elijah ran after this miracle was done on Mount Carmel. When you look more downwards, uh, not, not all the way to the Jezreel Valley, but towards the, the tree area kind of going down there, that is near there is the brook Kishon. The brook Kishon is going uh, down below. So this is the vicinity where Elijah had the prophets of Baal killed. I want to go back and just kind of show you here how that was not, when you, when you definitely see it in person, you see that it wasn't a hop, skip, and a jump. Uh, it was a good way, good ways down where these prophets would have been killed in the brook Kishon. Uh, again, this is a, a view from the roof of the chapel, of the Carmelite chapel, of the area of Mount Carmel, uh, and, and the Jezreel Valley. This is somewhere on this mountain is where this great miracle occurred. Now, that concludes. That concludes the things I wanted to talk with you about uh, pertaining to Bible geography. And I certainly 
hope that you were able to get some things out of these classes. Uh, I certainly enjoyed talking about these things. It brought back a lot of good memories for me. I want you to know that there were a lot of other places that I was able to see uh, that I was not able to talk with you about. Uh, Megiddo, I could have talked with you more about the Jezreel Valley. I was able to see the place where Ahab's palace was, King Ahab's palace. There were a lot of other places that I was able to see on this trip that unfortunately uh, I'm not going to be able to talk with you about because this concludes our classes today. What I hope you will take away from these classes we've had is I hope you will take away a better appreciation of geography. I hope you will better appreciate why the Holy Spirit mentions geography so much in the scriptures. I hope that these studies will encourage you to read carefully, more carefully, when you read your Bible. Notice the geography. Get you a map. Look carefully what these places are. Ask yourself the question of, why are these places being mentioned by the Holy Spirit in the text? Challenge yourself to notice every part of what the Holy Spirit says to you in the Bible. Pay attention to the geography. Slow down a little bit. Don't just blitz over it. Appreciate it. Understand it. Learn it. See it. I hope these classes will encourage you to read your Bible differently to read it more carefully, and to really appreciate geography. Now, starting this Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to begin a series of classes about the Apostle Paul. Very soon, at the Monte Vista Church of Christ, in our Bible reading, we're going to be reading through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is my favorite book uh, in the New Testament. It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. I love the book of Acts. And I really want us to kind of just take our time and appreciate so many things from Acts. I'm going to have several sermons from the book of Acts uh, in the month of August. I'm going to be teaching classes from Acts. I'm going to be teaching about the Apostle Paul and what the book of Acts tells us about Paul and the things that God used him to accomplish uh, in the book of Acts according to what Acts tells us. And so I hope these classes about the Apostle Paul will particularly help you in your readings of the book of Acts. And I hope you'll join me for those studies that, Lord willing, will begin this Sunday. Thank you for studying with me tonight.